we'll go past that one now. Um, that's a lead into the discussion today about baptism. And, and again, all of us, it's so funny, we come from faith traditions, like we'll look at another faith tradition and go, that's so funny. Not realizing that people are looking at us going, they're so funny. We, we think that we're not weird in any way. So, so Matthew, thir- Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and the title of today's message is Voices. Voices, and I think you'll get the point of why it's called Voices in just a second. As we look at the end of what we call the Old Testament, or as Jews would call it, the Tanakh, the last words that we get in Malachi are this, see, I will send the prophet Elijah. We talked about him last week. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord that comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, right? In Luke's gospel, this is what was said about John the Baptist, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so Malachi pens these words, and we have 400 years of silence. Not a single prophet was speaking during those 400 years. Complete silence. But then a voice burst into the time and space continuum. And these are the first words after 400 years of silence. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The voice of God. Speaking of his delight in his son, Jesus Christ. So as we look at this passage today, we're going to see three different voices. We're going to hear three different voices. We're going to hear the voice of John voice of deterrence. We're going to hear the voice of Jesus Christ, the voice of determination, and then we're going to hear the voice of the Father, the voice of delight. So first, we're going to see this as the passage unfolds, that Jesus of Nazareth is the beloved Son of God, the promised King and Messiah, validated by the voice of of God. This really encapsulates the passage that we're looking at this morning. We begin with John's voice, that voice of deterrence in verses 13 and 14. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized. So, so we see here part of the determination of Jesus as well, because Jesus had to make a conscious decision to travel from where he was in Galilee down to the Jordan where John was baptizing. Right? It's not like he attended a church one day and kind of got caught up in the frenzy at the end and people were being baptized and he kind of decided to join. No, he had to make a conscious decision and he had to travel a long way to be baptized by John. And we talked about where John was baptizing last week. We see here that John wasn't really ready to baptize Jesus. Right? We see this deterrence. But John tried to deter Jesus. Now the word deter is, uh, the way it's written is just like this repetitive, like he kept saying, no, no, no. Jesus, no, I want you to bask me. John, like, no, no, I can't do it. Jesus like, yeah, come on, John, you know, I, I told you, things are going to be different now. I, I need you to baptize me. No, 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 no. Jesus, John, I want you to baptize me. And John, has a, he's, he's being humble here. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So first thing, let's see, like, is this a little bit different than when, the, than when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John? And John's like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come from the fire? Or flee from the fire to come? 
And here he's like, he, you know, he's welcoming Jesus into his presence. And he's just like, I need to be baptized by you. So why was John the Baptist reluctant to baptize Jesus? I think most of you probably know the answer to this. But let's remember the, the, the nature of the baptism that John was offering, right? Confessing their sins, they, bapt, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. That was in the passage that we looked at last week. So John was reluctant to baptize Jesus because his baptism was a baptism of repentance, and he did not believe that Jesus had a need for repentance. I think it's also interesting that Jesus didn't necessarily disagree with John. When John said, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus didn't go, you know, you're right. <laughs> um, and so, so John knew something of Jesus. Now, how much did John know about Jesus? Did John know that Jesus was the Messiah when he came to be baptized? Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't give us any information about that, but, but John's gospel does. So let's, let's take a peek into John. And this passage may seem familiar to you. The next day, um, the next day would be uh, after John's interaction with the Pharisees. Okay, um, Jesus shows up on the scene. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he makes that statement, and now he's going to reflect back in just a second. So he makes this statement. He says, This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now that is an amazing statement considering the fact that John the Baptist was born chronologically before Jesus, his cousin. And so here we must understand that John and Jesus were cousins, right? We understand from Luke's gospel that Mary went to visit Elizabeth. They were obviously very close. And so there had to be some knowledge about John to Jesus and Jesus to John as they were growing up. I would imagine the families probably still had some interaction. The Bible doesn't tell us that, so I'm making a logical conclusion there. But he had some knowledge of Jesus, and, and, and such that when Jesus came down to the water, he knew this guy, he knows, he knows the law and the prophets backwards and forwards. He can quote, I mean, he, he just knows that. I have, he's coming to me to be baptized? And so in verse 31, we read, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So him saying that he did not know him was not that he'd never met the guy before. That's not what he was saying there. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So John the Baptist's knowledge of Jesus was limited until after he baptized Jesus. But he declared that he is God's chosen one. So prior to Jesus' baptism, John knew Jesus was a righteous man, one not in need of repentance. In fact, Jesus Christ was sinless when he entered the Jordan River to be baptized. This is an important doctrine, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. 
We must never think that because Jesus walked into the water of the Jordan and John was after offering a baptism of repentance that Jesus needed to repent of anything. No, the Scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ never sinned. We referred to this passage earlier today. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who, is, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Second Corinthians, the one who knew no sin became sin on our path. In 1 Peter 2.22, he didn't even sin with his words. No deceit was in his mouth. He was without sin, as Peter quotes from Isaiah 53. So John is deterring Jesus. He's trying to figure this out. But Jesus is determined. He has the voice of determination. And we see this in verse 15. Jesus replied, let it be so for now. This is an idiom. This is an expression, a figure of speech. And what it means is like, look, look I know it's unusual, but, but, but let it go this time. I know that I, I don't need a baptism of repentance, but, but hey, I'm, there's a deeper message here that I'm trying to give to you and to the people. Okay, and so let it be so now. I know it's unusual this time, but let's do it. And so Jesus is very firm. So why is it? Why is it that Jesus asked to be baptized? Right? That's the question that should be in your mind now. And well, Jesus answers the question, right? Look at the text at the end of verse 15. He says, it is proper for us to do this, what? To fulfill all righteousness. Well, John didn't mess around after that, right? John consented. He said, okay, let's go. Hopefully he did it with a little more finesse than the Eastern Orthodox priests. Up and down, up and down. So the question that comes to our mind now is, is what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Now, a lot's been written about this. A lot's been written. And, and thankfully, some of the commentators have sifted through all this and been written about what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness. I'm not going to give you every one of the options. I'm going to give you two answers. I think the, the answer here has a couple of layers to it. So the first answer is this, is that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness by identifying with sinful humanity as foretold in the prophets. And this is where we have to go back to Isaiah 40. As the servant of God is being introduced, it's clear, as we saw in Isaiah 53, that you know his, his grave was assigned with the wicked, right? He, he, his death, he, he died on the cross between two thieves. He, he lived in the world. He, he was hungry. He, he, he wept. Right? He, he identified with our human condition. And this was foretold in the prophets. So if, if Isaiah says the servant of God, God's chosen one, would come and, and be indistinguishable between other people, he, he didn't have anything extraordinary about him that would, would make him say, oh, that's, that's the Messiah there. Look at him. He's extraordinarily handsome. Look how well his beard is, is, is shaved. Look how big and built up he is. No, I mean, Judas had to kiss him. This is the one. And so Isaiah tells us that there would be a chosen one from God, the servant, and he is going to be a human just like us except he would never sin. All right, Isaiah 53, 12, we saw this a minute ago. He, the Messiah, was what? Numbered among the transgressors. He wasn't a sinner, but he was numbered, numbered among humanity. He was a human being just like us. One commentator says this, he didn't come just to teach. He didn't come just to set an example. He didn't come just to be a moralist. 
He didn't come to be a revolutionary. No, he came to identify with sinners. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And there in his baptism, he identified with sinners. Even in his birth, he identified with sinners. He was the child of Mary who was a sinner. So the first layer of fulfilling all righteousness was the prophet foretold one who would be numbered among the transgressors. He came born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law. He identified with us in our existence. And aren't you so thankful? Right, Because a huge distinction between what we believe and what, what Muslims believe is you know, we believe that God loved us enough to identify with us by taking on a human nature, that he entered into our existence to know pain and sorrow and suffering, just like we know pain and sorrow and suffering, then to die in our place and rise from the dead to give us the hope of eternal life. The second layer of fulfilling all righteousness is this, is that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness by removing sin to make the unrighteous righteous. In order for all righteousness to be fulfilled, the God, God's just punishment for sin had to be carried out. God's righteous word tells us that the wages of sin is death. The just penalty for sin is death. The symbolism of baptism is this, that you are buried in the likeness of his death. That Jesus died on the cross. And when he died, our sins died with him. The symbol of ba- symbolism of baptism is you under the water representing death. By identifying with sinners, yet sinless, and going under the water as a picture of death, Jesus was embracing the mission of his life to die as a substitute for sinners and in doing so, fulfilling the righteousness of God's law, right? If God is a God of justice, He's perfectly just, then there has to be a penalty for sin and the punishment for that penalty has to be carried out. If God is going to remain righteous, right? God's perfect righteousness demands that His justice is always fulfilled. Therefore, someone had to die in our place Someone sinless like Jesus Christ. And this baptism, picture this, right? Jesus says in Mark 10.38, he says, Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Right? That baptism symbolized Jesus' death as the wrath-bearing sacrifice, taking the wrath that our sins deserve. Now something we have to be careful not to do is to read like Paul's writings back into what Jesus was saying or doing. I mean, certainly sometimes Paul is kind of helping us understand what Jesus said and why he did what he did. But we don't want to put Paul's words in Jesus' mouth. But I think in the case of Romans chapter 6, it's perfectly fitting, right? When Paul writes in Romans 6, 3, he says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order in order that just like Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Paul is talking about baptism. He's got spirit baptism in view for sure, but I think he's he's looking at this picture of water baptism and all that it means for us. That the righteousness of God and the justice of God was fully fulfilled as Jesus died on the cross. Jesus fulfilled 
all righteousness by removing sin to make the unrighteous righteous. In Isaiah 53.11, and again, again, I think we need to understand what's happening here through the lens of Isaiah. Beginning at Isaiah 40, moving up through 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. One like us needed to be the sacrifice to fulfill the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So as Jesus journeyed to the Jordan, he was on a mission to declare to the world and to his Father that he embraced the mission given to him in eternity past. Jesus' baptism was this, not my will, but your will be done, Father. One old writer, I like the old writers, this guy's a good Presbyterian, actually, writing about baptism, no less. The shadow of the cross fell on the green banks and on the flowing river of Jordan. And it fell across the gentle and holy soul of Jesus as he stood there. He knew what baptism meant. To what it had reduced him. What its end would be. Yet knowing all, he voluntarily came to be baptized. Thus accepting the mission of redemption. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He was on a mission. He was on a mission to identify with sinners and then to die in the place of sinners. So as we consider this text, we move next to the delight of the Father, right? We've seen John's voice, a voice of deterrence. Jesus had a very determined voice. We saw that, and now we see the Father's voice, which is delight. Now, at this point, again, when I put this up, it means I need you to wake up and think. So, uh, I could give you a warm fuzzy right now, but I want you to think through this, right? Good job, Sam. Stretch. Wake up. Put on your thinking caps. So what I want us to understand in the remaining verses of this passage is this. When Jesus obediently followed the Father's command that he be baptized, now we didn't hear that, right? But we know because Jesus was so determined and that he was being led by the Spirit that he went there on the Father's command. When Jesus obediently followed the Father's command that he be baptized, he confirmed his chosen calling as both the suffering servant who would take away the sins of the world and the true Son of God who would rule on David's throne forever as the King of the Jews. That's a lot there in the remaining verses of this text. But it's there. Matthew's trying to tell us something, right? Jesus Christ is King. He is the King of the Jews. He's the King of the Jews. The lineage tells us that he is the rightful king of the Jews. The the wise men came and worshipped him. They recognized him as the king of the Jews. And now God's voice from heaven is validating the fact that his son, his son is the one spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalm chapter 2. This son who would be the king over Israel. This one on whom the Spirit would come down to declare his anointing. So as we look at these texts, right, we're going to see five different things here about what's going on as Jesus actually goes under the water and the dove comes down and the Father speaks. The first thing we see is the Father was pleased with his son's obedience, right? So in the text here, we see that the Father was pleased. He was delighted in what his son was doing. 
And certainly, overall, he was pleased with his obedience, right? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. We saw that already, right? And then he actually goes into the water to be baptized. God was pleased with the obedience of his son. I think sometimes we minimize the humanity of Jesus Christ. Of course he was going to get baptized. I mean, he's God in the flesh. If the Father tells the Son what Jesus is going to do, right? Yeah, I get that. But he was human too. He had to consider the journey, what the journey was going to cost him, and what baptism actually meant, what he was telling the world, and that when he went under the water and in came out, he was on mission for the next three years, headed to Jerusalem, headed to Golgotha to be crucified on the cross for the sins of humanity. But the Son always sought to please the Father. John's Gospel, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as what I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in His love. This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. Listen to His voice. So the Father was pleased with His obedience, but the Father was always also pleased with the Son's willingness to take the role as the servant. Right, this is where we have to kind of delve back into Isaiah's prophecy and understand the role of the servant. I encourage you to do that. Um, go back and read Isaiah 40 up through 53 to get an understanding of the servant. But the reason we know that Jesus was acting as the servant in Isaiah 40 are the following words. At that moment, heaven was opened. Just a, just a word about this. Heaven was opened. We see heaven opening in Ezekiel. We see heaven opening uh, with, with Stephen, the martyr, right? Heaven opened up. And we see heaven opening up here. I don't think this is just the wind blew and the clouds you know, went past the sun and the sun came down. This is the time and space continuum being ripped apart and God speaking from, if you will, another dimension into our existence. This is a supernatural event, friends. And as the heaven opened up, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. In Luke's Gospel, it's like in bodily form. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. I had to look up the word alighting. I was like, I never used that word. And really, the word alighting is an aviary term. It's, it's a bird landing on something. And so, the Spirit of God descends on the Son like a devil. What does that have to do with Jesus Christ being the servant? Well, let's look back in, in the prophecies in Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. Could I say my beloved one? Because that word for love there means elected, chosen one that I love. My chosen one, my beloved in whom I delight. The Father was just in again, again speaking what he'd already prophesied through Isaiah. He was keeping his word. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 11, 1 has kind of the same, uh, same terms used about the spirit on the servant, on the son. Isaiah 61, 1. This passage comes up again and again in the chosen like this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. That picture of anointing from the spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. Right, so we see 
The son was willing to take on the role of the servant. Well, that's good. I mean, God was empowering him. He was going to do great things like, you know, the blind were going to see, the lame were going to walk, those in prison were going to be set free. But what was going to cost him? Isaiah 53 is what was going to be the cost for the suffering servant. That he be numbered among the transgressors. That he would bear our iniquities. That he would be beaten to the point that he was so disfigured that nobody could recognize who he was. And the son said, yes, I will take that role. He walked, he traveled to the Jordan from Galilee. He went down in the water and he was determined, even though deterred, he was determined to go under the waters of the Jordan, declaring himself to be the servant, the suffering servant. The father was pleased because the son embraced that role. The father was also pleased because the son, he was willing to be a sacrifice for sinners. You might say, well, you've already said that, Jay. Well, I have said that. But I think there's a picture here that I think that our understanding of the Spirit's work now, which is important, right? The spirit as a dove. Is, that's how we see in picture all the time now. Um, it, it, for us, it means, okay, uh, it's charismatic. It's the power of the spirit on Pentecost. It's anointing, okay? But there's another uh, symbolism for doves that we take for granted because we're not of the same mindset of the Jew of that day. And that's that when people saw doves and heard people speak about doves, they were thinking of a sacrifice from somebody for somebody who's from Hamtramck who didn't have any. They're like, we're, we're just regular old folk. I can't bring a big ox in there. All I have is a couple of doves in the backyard. That's all I can afford. A sacrifice for my sin. That's all that I have. And so this dove alighting on Jesus was saying, this is the servant. He would be the sacrifice for all of humanity. And we see throughout you know, in the Old Testament, the, the temple worship, the doves were mentioned. And, and we see it actually in Luke's Gospel, right? When Mary and Joseph came for Jesus to be named and to be circumcised, they had to bring a sacrifice. And what was the sacrifice there? A pair of doves. This is important. We don't always read things through the mindset of somebody who was participating in temple worship. And for the one participating in temple worship, the dove meant sacrifice. It meant a sacrifice for sin and for sinners. And so the father was pleased that he was embracing this role as our sacrifice. He was also pleased that he would be the righteous representative for his people. The righteous representative for his people. Remember when we, we first started looking at, at Jesus as true Israel? Out of, out of Egypt I have called my son. And I made the point that Egypt in Exodus is called God's Son, his firstborn son. Egypt went out into, I mean, Israel was called God's firstborn son. Israel left Egypt, went out into the wilderness, and failed completely as God's firstborn son. They failed completely. Now we have Jesus as God's firstborn son, the true son of Israel. He's being baptized, he's embracing the mission that God's going to give him. And where does he go as soon as he's baptized? He goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted. Does he fail? No. He succeeds where Israel fails. He is our representative. He is our sinless representative. We see this in the text. The voice from heaven said, This is my son. He is 
the Son of God, i.e. He is God in the flesh. But Israel was looking forward to that Son who would come from the line of David, right? We've talked about that, right? The lineage of Jesus Christ, that He's from the line of David, that He is that Son, that descendant of David, that every single person who lived after King David looked forward to. And it was known that David had received a prophecy that somebody would always be on his throne, that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. All through the prophets, we see God tell us again and again, house of Judah, house of David, there will come one who will sit on David's throne. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting for the Messiah. And finally he comes and he goes in to be baptized and the father says, this is the son, he's the one you've been waiting for. Remember, this out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus would succeed as son where Israel failed. He would be the true Israel. The father was pleased that his son would establish his rule and kingdom. That Messiah that I was just talking about. We see that that in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said, listen to me, you are my son. This is an important passage. Incredible weight theologically is held on Psalm chapter 2. Writer of Hebrews finds this to be a very important verse. You are my son. Uh, Is there a time when the son never existed? No, it didn't exist. The son has always existed. The son has always been in existence with the father. So what is he saying there? He's saying, today you are my son. You are the one who is going to assume the throne of David. You are the one who will rule over my people forever. And so when God broke through, the Father broke through the time-space continuum, and he spoke into our existence after 400 years of silence, he says, this is my son, the one you've been waiting for. Lastly, the father was pleased with his son. He chose him. He chose him. And the text says, this is my beloved, my dearly loved son. Other versions of the Bible, I mean, the NIV really just says whom I love. That's all it says. I think the ESV, NAS, King James, they say, this is my beloved son. That word beloved, it has attached to it election chosen. This is the one who before the foundation of the world was determined that he would be my chosen one. He was the one who was going to reverse the curse and destroy the works of work of the devil. He is the sacrifice slain before the foundation of the world. He is my chosen one. He is the one that I love. We read this already in John's gospel. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen God's beloved one. So as we look at this text, so much is is here. There's so many layers of truth. I think Matthew's trying to tell us something. And this is what Matthew's trying to tell us. When Jesus obediently followed the Father's command that he be baptized, he confirmed his chosen calling. As both what? The suffering servant? We saw that beginning in Isaiah 40, moving through Isaiah 53, as the suffering servant and as the true Son of God who would rule on David's throne forever as the king of the Jews. And in the word suffering is his dying on the cross 
for our sins and rising from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth is the beloved Son of God, the promised King, the Messiah, validated by the voice of the Father. So three voices. John's voice of deterrence. Jesus, aren't you thankful? His voice of determination. And the Father's voice of delight. So three points to ponder here as we close. One, ponder the importance of baptism by immersion. Ponder the importance of baptism by immersion. Now, I'm not here to disparage uh, any other faith tradition that doesn't baptize by immersion. Okay, that's not what I'm doing at this point. I would say there is so much theological weight wrapped up in baptism by immersion that you don't want to lose the meaning behind the symbol. That's why we focus on baptism by immersion. First, the word baptism means to immerse. You, You can't escape that. It means to immerse. And I've tried to, in a brief period of time, describe for you theologically the importance of what it means to be immersed. I mean, all that was going on when Jesus walked into the Jordan River, into the Jordan River, and as he went under the water and came about, all that was being said there about his death and his resurrection from the dead. I believe it's important to keep the meaning behind the symbol of baptism. Just as an aside, and I won't charge you extra for this today, but... Um, the Roman Catholic Church baptized by immersion until the 1300s. There was a council of Ravenna. And in that council, they began to acquiesce to other forms of baptism. Now, and again, I don't want to disparage other faith traditions that don't baptize by immersion. I do believe they've lost, they've lost the meaning behind uh, the symbolism when they sprinkle or when they Uh, pour water on top of somebody's head. Uh, And and so it's important for us to keep the meaning behind the symbol, to baptize by immersion. And and I think the other thing that's important is the fact that we practice credo-baptism. There's two types of baptism. There's credo-baptism and there's pedo-baptism. The word pedo, I think you might be able to get pediatric from that. Credo would be, think of a creed, it's something that you believe And so, as those who practice credo-baptism, we believe that you must believe before you're baptized, right? Acts 2.41, those who believe, those who accepted the message were baptized and added to the church. Baptism is a a decision that uh, really reflects, Sam discussed this this morning, you did a great job. There's an, an internal change has happened. Now I'm declaring to the world that I have identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. I'm trusting in that alone for my salvation. And this baptism, as I go under, is a symbol of that. So we practice credo-baptism. Pedo-baptism, or the baptism of infants, I mean, you can see how this would arise. If, if, if you have a, um, an understanding of salvation that says that baptism actually saves you, that going under the water uh, saves you or washes away your sins. And I, and I tell people, if you go into the water center, you're coming out of the water center, okay? It's just a symbol, All right? But there are many, many faith traditions that believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. We don't teach that. And so if, you're, if you are of the mindset that you believe in original sin, that every person ever born comes into this world a sinner, and you believe that baptism washes sin away, 
then you're going to take your baby, like we saw in the video, and get him dipped, you know, and, and that was the, the, the Eastern Orthodox is three times, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're going to want your infant baptized as soon as possible, because what if something happens to your infant and they are a sinner? I need to get them under the water quickly. We've had Albanian friends who don't want to take their child anywhere at all until their baptism, because what if something happens to them and they haven't been baptized yet? And so that's why people espouse pedo-baptism. And so in the 1300s, when the Roman Catholic Church acquiesced to sprinkling and pouring, then you have the Reformation in the 1500s. No matter how much things changed the Reformation, there were still some things that were brought into the Reformation, and one of those was baptism. But it's, it's easier, right? I mean, quite frankly, if you live in a cold environment, and, and you want to take care of baptism, just you know, sprinkle her head. So, I'm not saying that baptism saves. Again, I'm not disparaging anybody else. If, you know, we, I have good brothers in Christ who come from a, a, a Presbyterian background where they were sprinkled as a kid. They believe that they're baptized and, and, and they're believers, right? Many, many people are trusting in Christ, will be in heaven, heaven with us one day, and never went under the waters of baptism, okay? But bringing it back full circle, we don't want to lose the meaning behind the symbol of baptism. Second thing I want us to ponder is, is this, is that um, we want to ponder the triunity of God. I didn't bring this up in the text. When I talk about the triunity of God, I'm talking about the trinity. The trinity, the triunity of God. And we see this in the text, right? As Jesus was baptized, the Son was baptized, He went up out of the water, at that moment, heaven was opened up. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and a voice from heaven. Well, whose voice was that? Well, it's the voice of the Father. Right? This is one of the strongest Trinitarian verses in the Bible. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in essence, distinct in person, different responsibilities like we discussed in 1 Corinthians. But aren't you so glad that God is... He's triune, right? God over us. God with us. God in us. The beautiful, beautiful, beautiful part of our theology. And again, there's no proof text for the Trinity. We just take passages like this. Okay, really Jesus is fully God, the Son of God. We believe the Spirit is God. We believe the Father is God. So, how do we explain that? We just submit to the reality that God is one essence, but distinctly three persons. So we ponder the triunity of God. And lastly, we ponder the great love of God. That God would so love us that he would send his beloved, his one-of-a-kind son, into the world to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice for sinners that he would love us that much. Isn't that an amazing truth? And we, we say that all the time. We say that all the time, and I think, you know, because it's familiar, we, we give it less, less meaning. But that God would love sinners like us. Sinners that need the blood of Jesus to wash away our sins. Sinners that need to submit to a baptism of repentance. Ponder the great love of God in his work through his son, Jesus Christ.